welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 34, The Manakmus Brothers, Hand in Hand, Not One Before the Other. Last time, Cassina by Plautus gave us an insight into his style and mode of comedy that resided firmly in the domestic sphere, focusing on the differences between social classes, generations and the sexes to generate its comedy. This is farce that's recognisable to us, with fast and timed entrances and exits, from two or three doors on stage, mannered exaggeration and stage conventions that meant that the audience could ignore the implausibility of the stage whispers, mistaken identities and ridiculous characters who apparently didn't see how awful and silly they really were. This was Plautus's stock in trade, and was the template that he reused many times, to great effect and popular acclaim. So on the face of it, because of that repetition, there's not a lot else to say about his plays. But close attention to the text does show some subtle differences, and there's one play that particularly stands out because of its reuse in later centuries. The Monachmus Brothers is the primary source material Shakespeare used for The Comedy of Errors. Primary because he also used elements of Amphitryon and, of course, adds his own complexities and nuances to the plot that make his play all the better than the original. The reputation of the Plautus play is mixed. In my reading around, I found it referred to both as Plautus at his best, as a relatively minor work, and just about everything in between. That alone piqued my interest in it, and of course it caught Shakespeare's eye, so the only possible conclusion was that it has to be worth a longer look. It certainly is a good example of Plautus's work in its own right, precisely because it uses all of the typical comic devices that features in Roman plays, having inherited that from Greek New Comedy. It includes a set of identical twins, which makes the succession of essential misunderstandings that propel the plot just about credible, and a strong set of stock characters as their foil. The climax is the improbably happy ending so typical of Greek New and Roman comedy, but there is a good argument that there is more to it than just all of that. Before we get started on the play itself, I should note that the use of identical twins as a comic device seems to have been a popular one since the beginnings of comedy. There is evidence of eight other Greek comedies featuring such siblings, and although none have survived, just the fragments and recording of eight plays suggests that there were many more as well. It seems safe to assume that the Roman audience were already on familiar ground when this plot came up. Once again, as with Cassina, there were no surprises here in the thrust of the familiar plot. The audience came to see how the comedy was derived from the story, not to be surprised by the outcome, or to be concerned with the moral journey of the characters. The brothers are known as Monachmus of Syracuse, the birth town of both brothers, and Monachmus of Epidamnus, the town of the separated twins' upbringing. Their father was a Sicilian merchant, and when the boys were aged seven, he decided to take one of them on a business trip. While they were at a fair where games were in progress, the boy goes missing and couldn't be found, stolen in fact by a wealthy man who had no children of his own. This, you will remember, was a common plot point in Greek plays. Bad things happen at the festival or the games in the Roman version. This traumatic event soon causes his father to die from despair. The remaining child is taken in by the grandfather, and the boy never loses his desire to search for his twin. The grandfather renames the boy after his lost brother, who carried his own name as well. Obviously, plenty of opportunity for future confusion there, as we now have three people with the same name, two of whom are identical twins, so alike as even their mother couldn't tell them apart as she suckled them. 
Six years of searching by Menachmus of Syracuse has passed before the now young man comes to Epidamnus. The old man who took Menachmus of Epidamnus is now dead, so the young man has a good fortune, a wife, a family, a father-in-law and a mistress. All of this is in the prologue, and with that done, the play proper opens, not with either of the brothers, but with Paniculus, the stock parasite character. He comments that his nickname is Sponge, because when he eats, he wipes the table clean, but the term also had some lewd connotations for the Romans. Once again, we have greed and lust being conflated by Plautus. Before advancing the story in his monologue, Paniculus gives us a passage concerning the treatment of slaves. It's a passage that's often used in the argument that Plautus was advocating social reform in the form of better treatment for slaves. Paniculus makes a very reasoned argument for caring for slaves in a more kindly way. If they run away, he says, they should not be shackled, and continues... Because if you add insult to injury, the poor man will turn bad and just want to escape all the more. He will slip these chains. You can be sure of that. Filing away or knocking out a link with a stone is all it takes. It's really not good. If you want to bind your man to you, then keep him fed and watered. Chain him to the lure of the dinner table. If you give him food and drink every day, then he will never want to leave you, even if he has committed murder. The ties of food and drink are like elastic bands, you see. The more you stretch, the tighter they hold. So is this Plautus as social reformer? There is another view. The speech is given by Paniculus, who is a standard stock character, and would have been immediately recognised as an unreliable and shifty character, as he sponges off the others wherever he can. He also engages in mock philosophy throughout the play, as the stock character does in others, so In this context, the championing of slaves could be seen as a rather silly and unrealistic suggestion coming from an untrustworthy character, really played for comic effect, especially if it confirmed the audience's existing prejudices. And this is a relatively small part of the speech. It's about a third of a speech which is mainly concerned with his own need for some food and making his parasitic relationship with Menachmus quite explicit. He makes it clear that he is only friends with Menachmus because of the fine feasts he prepares, so the whole argument he makes could be seen as the character proposing a behaviour that just fulfils his own needs, the need for copious amounts of food on a regular basis. When we first meet Menachmus of Epidamnus, it's as he exits his house. He is berating his jealous wife for her suspicions, promising that he will fulfil her bad thoughts about him. In fact, we soon discover that she does indeed have good cause, as he reveals to Paniculus that he has stolen his wife's best dress and plans to give it to Erotium, the prostitute who lives next door. With much innuendo between them, they have high expectations of the rewards she will offer, both culinary and physical. They call her to the door and she accepts the gifts and promises to make them a breakfast, with a nudge and a wink. They go off to the forum for a few drinks, full of expectations of what the rest of the day will hold. A short scene where Erotium calls out her cook, Solyndrus, closes the act. As he is dispatched to the market for supplies, he comments that he'll need to buy enough for ten guests to account for Paniculus's appetite. Menachmus of Syracuse arrives with his slave Messenio, who warns him of the reputation that Epidamnus has for depravity, populated as it is with drinkers, swindlers and, by reputation, the most captivating harlots in the world. In short, the locals are a bunch of thieves who will think nothing of relieving a traveller of his money, according to Messenio. Menachmus admits that he's a great admirer of women and resolves to give the slave his purse so that he won't be tempted to spend the last of their funds on the city's temptations. 
The cook returns with their supplies from the market, surprised at the guest's early arrival. In an effort to delay the guests, he greets Monachmus, mistaking him for the other brother. And we get the first of many scenes that revolve around the mistaken identity of one of the twins. Through Monachmus not recognising the cook or Erotium's house, or his own as far as the cook is concerned, and the cook speaking to Monachmus as someone who is well known to him, they each consider the other gone quite mad. This becomes a common response to events throughout the play, and prefigures a scene where Monachmus of Syracuse intentionally feigns madness, but I'm getting ahead of events. The cook hurries off to find his mistress, and the two travellers are left bewildered. Erotium comes out of the house and greets Monachmus warmly, mistaking him for his brother. She is soon confused when he greets her formally, inquiring after her business with him. The business of Venus, she replies, along with other suggestive phrases. Mesenio explains her seemingly odd behaviour away by assuming she's a fraudster after their money and in league with spies in the city who've learnt of their arrival. Erotium gets bored of what she sees as his teasing and tells him to come in and eat. The food she promised when he gave her the dress is ready. Although Erotium is able to recount quite a bit of his, which is actually his brother's, life story, Monachmus is confused, but tempted by the prospect of a good feed with an engaging young woman, so he gives Messenio his purse, sends him off and goes into the house. Paniculus opens Act 3 with a mini-prologue that takes a jibe at the way men misuse the legal system for their own benefit. But he then spots Monachmus leaving Erotium's house, high on food and drink, and the affectionate attentions of a pretty woman. He's also acquired the dress, which Erotium has asked him to get fixed with new trimming. Paniculus is cross that he's missed out on the food, and another conversation over mistaken identity and confusion erupts. Monachmus eventually shoes Paniculus off as a mad stranger. Paniculus takes his leave, but feeling affronted, he resolves to tell his friend's wife about the stolen dress. While Monachmus stands in the street trying to work out if he's awake or dreaming, Erotium's maid comes out and hands him a gold bracelet that needs to go to the goldsmith for repair. She reminds him that it's another of his wife's possessions that he gifted to her mistress. Sensing that something is awry, but playing along and thanking the gods for his good fortune at this shower of gifts, he heads for the inn to consult with Messenio about how they can turn these goods into cash to restore their finances. Act 4 begins with the unnamed wife of Monachmus of Epidamnus rushing on, looking for her husband, now fully aware of his recent actions thanks to Paniculus. Monachmus, her husband, comes on, returning from the forum and riffing on the deficiencies of the legal system, but also full of expectation for his promised breakfast and time with Erotium. All his hopes are soon dashed when his wife lays into him, demanding the return of her dress and making it clear that he will not be welcome in his own home without it. Deciding that he will have to get this dress from Erotium, but resolving to buy her a better one to keep her sweet, he thinks that this can still will work out okay. But he's amazed when Erotium calls him a cheat and a liar, demanding to know what he's done with the dress and her bracelet. He genuinely has no idea what she's talking about and has no answer for her. He's left alone on stage, both houses closed to him. He makes an exit to find some friends who, he hopes, can explain what on earth is going on. Monachmus of Syracuse enters searching for Messenio and is still carrying the dress when he is spotted by his brother's wife. Mistaking him for her husband, she demands that Monachmus confesses his shameful behaviour and he, nonplussed by this approach from a stranger, protests that he has no idea what she means and that he was given this dress by another lady. She calls her father out for support who quickly decides that his son-in-law must have gone mad. 
Picking up on the idea as a way of escape from these strange and rather frightening people, Menachmus feigns madness and puts on such a convincing show that the old man hurries off to find a doctor, but not before making sure that his daughter is safely back in their own home. Menachmus makes a quick exit while he can get away, requesting that the audience does not reveal his direction to the old man when he returns. Having hurried the doctor away from his patients, the old man returns with him. They encounter Menachmus of Epidamnus. He's trying to work out why his day is turning out quite so badly, and is outraged when the doctor and the old man add to his troubles by suggesting that he's lost his mind. But his passionate behaviour only convinces the doctor that the diagnosis is correct, and they leave to find slaves to restrain the patient. At this point, Mersenio has another monologue, which considers the position of slaves and how they are treated. It's here that he mentions how lazy slaves are punished with whips, irons, hunger, cold and the mill, as referenced in the biography of Plautus. The old man returns with slaves who surround Menachmus of Epidamnus to restrain him. He's completely unaware of the reason for this, and Mersenio leaps to his defence, assuming that it's his own master in trouble again. He fights off the slaves and asks for his freedom from Menachmus in return for the good deed. Menachmus admits that he does not know Mersenio, but he's happy for him to consider himself freed anyway. It's when Mersenio says he'll return shortly with the money that he has in safe keeping that Menachmus begins to think that he might really be going mad. He heads for Erotium's house to retrieve the dress and try to make things good with her, just missing his twin, who returns and finds Mersenio returning with the purse. Menachmus' Syracuse upbraids Mersenio for being gone so long, which Mersenio thinks is a bit much, given that he's just saved him from a beating and been given his freedom anyway. As Menachmus ponders this latest conundrum, Menachmus of Epidamnus comes out of Erotium's house, and the twins finally meet. Confusion with comments like, It's like looking in a mirror, and You're as alike as it's possible to be, quickly turns to recognition. Mersenio manages to get the twins completely mixed up, taking Menachmus of Epidamnus as his master, to which Menachmus of Syracuse suggests that it's his slave who's now gone mad. With all confusions eventually resolved, Mersenio is freed again, and properly this time. Menachmus of Epidamnus agrees to go and live with his brother. He will leave his life in Epidamnus behind and make a fresh start. The play ends with Mersenio announcing that there will be an auction held tomorrow, selling off all of Menachmus of Epidamnus's possessions, including his wife, if any interested buyers can be found. So, we can see this is a very fast-moving plot, even by Plautus's standards, and it calls for a huge suspension of disbelief. This is so obvious that it really doesn't need pointing out, but I will anyway. Menachmus arrives in Epidamnus searching for his twin brother, but doesn't see why he keeps getting mistaken for someone else. I mean, it does stretch credulity beyond the limit, and that reminds us that such suspension by the audience was expected, indeed was demanded by the playwright. The plot is so silly, and the mistaken identity threads that run through the play are so obvious, and set up in such a heavy-handed way, that I think this rather spoils appreciation of the humour of the situation. It illustrates just what the low expectations of the Roman audience at the time were. If this was the first play where the joke of mistaken identity between identical twins was presented, we might be able to accept that it was funny because of its originality. But with the evidence for multiple previous Greek versions, there's good reason to believe that by this time it was already a well-used formula. The play also suffers from characters that are not as sharply drawn as in other plays. 
With perhaps the exception of the father-in-law, a relatively minor character, the characters here don't stand up, for example, to Cleostrata or Marina in Cassina. Cleostrata's strength and Marina's slightly detached enjoyment of the male character's discomfort brings out their characters in a way that's not replicated here. As central characters, the brothers come across as rather flat and are best compared in their negative characteristics. Where Menachmus of Epidamnus has no redeeming features, and his brother is not that much more likeable, as he becomes easily caught up in avarice and greed. We can see that it would become quite possible for him to become like his brother if he stayed in Epidamnus for too long, and that's a weakness of character that undermines his position as the better twin. This is probably intentional by Plautus. This is a more cynical piece than many of his plays, even when they feature characters who overtly scheme against others. Both brothers are brash young men, with, as noted, few, if any, redeeming qualities. But there are few in the entire cast who we can genuinely sympathise with. Of the main characters, only the kindly slave Messenio really stands out. His monologues on the plight of the slave make him appear intelligent and thoughtful, and any annoyance he displays to the brothers is more understandable because of his position and the situation. As the deliverer of the epilogue that ends the play, he also appears finally, both free and in control. The play is a good illustration of how the names given to most of the stock characters are comically related to their position and character in the play. In this case, we have the mistress Erotium, which translates not as obviously as we might guess to lovely or pretty, and the cook is Cylindrus, which translates to roller, and references both the rolling pin tool of the cook's trade and the idea that the cook would be portrayed as a fat person. Paniculus, the character of the parasite, means sponge or mop, as mentioned before. The stylized naming of characters is common throughout Paulotus's plays. They're made to sound Greek, because the setting is always Greece and it detaches the action from Rome, but they're not real names, and sometimes they're just used because they sound funny but often there's an added layer of humour or irony. So, for example, the slave character in The Haunted House is called Grumio, sounding like the Greek word for lowlife or riffraff. In the same play, the young man Philolachus sounds like the Greek for lucky lover, and the young woman Philomatium sounds like the Greek for little kisser. Plautus clearly put some thought and enjoyment into the naming of characters. As I prepare to leave Plautus and move on, I'm struck by how the central female characters remain perhaps the most problematic aspect of his comedies. Yes, I can speak about the strength of some of them, both in terms of the strength of the portrayed character and in terms of their presence on stage and as part of the craft of the play, but ultimately their role in the resolution of the play is passive and there is no getting away from that. The wives and lovers always end up as subservient to the men, even if they've scored individual victories in the gender battles fought during the play. The modern romantic comedy emphasises the feelings and actions of both young lovers and often the plot revolves around how they change each other to achieve happiness. The Roman comedy has none of this, and the woman is more often than not a prostitute and literally a possession of one of the male characters. The change for the woman is just a partner swap, she's still a possession. The strongest of the female characters do show determination, loyalty and a stronger moral sense than most of the male characters, but this is Roman life turned on its head and it's the otherness of that situation that allowed the audience to relax and enjoy the presented situation. This concept of places in society temporarily swapping was a well-known one through the Saturnalia Festival, 
This Christmas forerunner was a midwinter festival, the main feature of which was social inversion, where masters would serve their slaves. The performance of plays wasn't part of this festival, but many scholars have noted the Saturnalian elements that the plays have. Deceitful, clever slaves get the better of their masters all the time, whereas in real life such behaviours would lead to severe punishment, even death. As mentioned last time, the paterfamilias was all-powerful and expected respect from his extended family. But the plays are full of errant, disobedient sons and foolish old men. Are these displays, and the role of women where they have occasional triumphs, an attempt at social intervention to effect change, or an escape valve that only serves to reinforce the moral superiority that the upper rungs of Roman society undoubtedly felt? On reflection, I still come down on the side of the latter, given the entrenched patriarchal nature of Roman society. But maybe Plautus does deserve more credit than I've given him so far for the subversive elements of his work, however understated. The Menachmus brothers is most notable for its use of the identical twins, but they're not the only point of symmetry in the play. We don't know if this was Plautus' invention or already present in the Greek original, but the basic symmetrical nature of the play, with balancing scenes between the two brothers, has long been noted by scholars. The play is capped at either end by the prologue describing the separation of the twins and by the final scene of recognition and the promise of the return to Syracuse. The final scene takes place within the play, so not strictly an epilogue, but it paraphrases the main plot points covered in the prologue, reminding the audience of the premise. The axis point of the first part of the play proper is the arrival of Menachmus of Syracuse, when we become aware of the differences in character between the two brothers. Prior to this, the main plot points have been concerned with the dress and its acquisition by Erotium. In the second part of the play, the pivotal scene is where the same Menachmus feigns madness to escape the situation he finds himself in with the old man and the doctor. It's noted that Menachmus of Syracuse is successful in his endeavours, while his brother notably fails in all of his attempts to please his mistress, placate his wife and keep his friend and staff on side. Within the structure, Paniculus has two monologues that follow each other closely in structure and content and his scenes involve each of the brothers carrying the dress, so they are in effect mirror images of each other. Scholars have found many scenes that mirror each other in this way. For example, the action in Act 1 opens with Menachmus of Epidamnus berating his wife as he comes out of the house, finishing off an argument. The action in Act 3 opens with Menachmus of Syracuse shouting back to Erotium in her house, Will you be quiet? Close study of the text leads some scholars to suggest that this mirroring is carefully planned throughout the play, with each character not only having parallel scenes, but that the language used within the scenes also creates parallels with, for example, the metaphors used by the characters, moving from the Epicurean to the military in parallel in two scenes. The scene with Erotium and Menachmus and Paniculus is paralleled with that of Erotium, the other Menachmus and Mesenio. Both open with military metaphors and then become concerned with money and how it's easily lost. Similar parallels and opposites are detected in the two scenes featuring the cook Solyndrus and the brothers individually. A classic interpretation of these parallels presented by Eric Siegel is that they represent the conflict between the Roman concepts of industria, meaning productive business or work, and voluptas, meaning pleasure and enjoyment. Industria, which Menachmus of Epidamnus struggles against, Voluptus, which 
Monachmus of Syracuse benefits from. The characteristics of the two towns themselves also reflect this opposition, with the citizens of Epidamnus being portrayed as a dissolute bunch who'll take advantage of a visitor and the Syracusans as hard-working and honest. Siegel also suggested that what was lacking in the play is the usual attribute of the Plautus protagonist, Cunning. All of the comedy is based on pure misunderstanding, not on clever and intricate plans that don't quite work out. This view has been challenged with the suggestion that Monachmus of Syracuse fulfils the role of the cunning schemer. This is somewhat true, as he's happy to become complicit in and take advantage of the apparent good fortune that comes his way, even though he doesn't understand why these things are happening. But he's certainly not an instigator and planner of the events. He is as much caught up in these events and the misunderstandings as the other characters, and twists them to his advantage. But he's no Lysidemus when it comes to cunning and scheming. And to return to the portrayal of the twins, is it fair to say that there's a clear optimistic vein in the play, where the brother from Syracuse is shown as the brother we should aspire to be and have sympathy with? Well, possibly. He is certainly what his brother aspires to be, and that's why he can leave Epidamnus and all his connections there. By doing that, he emulates his brother, whose only tie was the yearning to find his lost brother. In that sense, espousing the love of family above all else, he conforms to the Roman view rather than the perceived Greek behaviours and is the hero of the piece. But he's not immune from temptation and of taking advantage where it presents itself. So he's no paragon and it's not, I think, quite as clear-cut as some have suggested. However, there's no doubt that in the conclusion, the spirit of pleasure and enjoyment triumphs. Monachmus of Syracuse is reunited with his brother. Monachmus of Epidamnus has an escape from all of his obligations, and Mersenio the slave is freed, acting as a sort of MC to the anticipated celebrations. We see that as the slave gaining some power, but I'm not sure that the Roman audience would have seen it in quite the same way, given their easier acceptance of slavery as a concept and a common practice. Easier for them to leave this topsy turvy world in the theatre and not take anything from it home with them. Although grounded in Greek new comedy, this play has a very different tone from, say, Menander. The Saturnalian feel to the play is not resolved by the ending in the usual way of Greek new comedy. The slave is released to become the freeman, Monachmus of Epidamnus ends his marriage rather than recovering it. The ending could even be called ambiguous if we question how the twins' lives would continue. Will they become good men of Syracuse or roistering young men abroad? Arguably, it's not clear which we are expected to believe. Monachmus of Epidamnus has been operating in a society full of flaws, having been thrown into it by his forced adoption, and he can't escape it. The way he shirks his civic responsibilities, becomes irritated because he's denied the pleasures of his prostitute and a good feed, and steals from his wife all go against the normal outcomes of Greek New and Roman comedy. In effect, in Erotium, he has the girl he wants, usually the end of new comedy, with the young lover happy with his lot at least. But in this case, he throws her off for his brother. The resolutions may be unconventional in this sense, but this is still a recognition comedy, with the large elements of slapstick and farce that the Roman audience would expect. Next time, I'm going to continue on the Plautus theme, but step out of the Roman timeline and look at the way Plautus influenced Shakespeare and other Renaissance playwrights, and the way in which that influence made its way to Elizabethan England. 
Although this somewhat preempts future episodes, it feels right to talk about it now while Plautus is still fresh in the mind, and hopefully you've now got a good feel for his style and technique. Way back at the beginning of all this, I referred to the podcast as a more or less chronological history of the development of theatre, and this is the first time I've significantly deviated from the historic path. So, I feel justified, and anyway, who doesn't want to hear about Shakespeare, the 400-year-old dramatist who tapped the pulse of humanity so well that he's still relevant today. As I write, some monumental events have just taken place in Washington DC in the final days of a presidency, and my thought was that, what a shame the president had never seen Coriolanus. He might just have seen all this coming. So next time, it's off to medieval Europe. But in the meantime, please join us on Twitter for more theatre-related stuff. And if you would like access to the transcripts for the episodes or some more audio content, then please find us on patreon.com and sign up there. I've just added some new audio on the life and works of Livy, the great historian of the Roman Republic, from whom we get so much of our information. Thanks for your support on Patreon or at Kofi.com, all of which helps me to keep the lights on here. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Mm-hmm.